Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm Anna Fishson, your host, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Darian Leader about his recent book, Strictly Bipolar, published by Penguin in 2013. Darian Leader is a psychoanalyst working in London and a member of the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research and of the College of Psychoanalysts UK. He's the author of many books uh, with very interesting titles, um, including Introducing Lacan, a Why Do Women Write More Letters Than They Post, Freud's Footnotes, Stealing the Mona Lisa, What Art Stops Us From Seeing, why Do People Get Ill with David Corfield, published by Penguin in 2007. The New Black, Morning Melancholia and Depression, published by Hamish Hamilton in 2008. And What is Madness, uh, published by Penguin in 2011. Uh, Darian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anna. Thank you for hosting this. Uh, thanks. Um, so th- this will sound maybe a bit strange, uh, given the book's subject, but I... Uh, I really enjoyed reading this book. I, I think it was in part because um, you gave so many vivid, colorful vignettes and, and narratives, not only from your clinical practice, but also from memoirs and autobiographies. Uh, for example, the actor Stephen Fry, Patty Duke, Jane Pauley, and, um, and many others, and also because you write so well. But maybe at some point in the interview, we'll get around to talking about um, the difference or the, the genre of autobiography for manic depressives. Um, but uh, anyway, I'd like to begin, though, by asking about the title. <laughs> why, first of all, the strictly in the title, Strictly Bipolar? Uh, because and, and why bipolar? Because in, your, in the book, you ultimately favor the diagnosis manic depression over bipolarity. I think you make That's that. That's right. In yeah. England, we... All watch a program called Strictly Come Dancing. The oh. whole country watches it. And so the moment you use the word strictly, what comes afterwards is immediately associated with that, the cultural dominance of that particular program. And it intrigued me that in one of the memoirs of so called bipolarity, one young man said, um, I've got nothing much going on apart from bipolar. I'm strictly bipolar. <laughs> and I like the phrase and also the idea of the way in which young people today could buy into or be induced to buy into a diagnostic category. The Mm. idea that there was nothing else going on because everything was reduced to the label of bipolar. So that's why I chose that as a title. Oh, that's interesting. Fantastic. Yeah, because, well, you talk about the the recent and meteoric uh, sort of popularity of the bipolar diagnosis which apparently wasn't, we didn't see it much before the 1980s, and it's ubiquitous today. So uh, maybe you can tell the audience about, uh, you know, to what do you attribute the relatively, this relatively recent popularity? Yeah, I mean, the diagnosis itself has really um, just expanded in all the Western countries um, and is expanding in many of the non-Western countries today. I think that one of the main factors has been the expiry of the licenses for many of the SSRI antidepressant drugs. Mm. When these were coming to an end, the pharmaceuticals companies had to find a new market to create. They had to sell more drugs, and it's been made very, very clear, not only by the historians now, but also by the court documents released in America in the last two years, 
which show the internal correspondence of pharmaceuticals companies. I think it makes mm. um, these things, you know, fairly irrefutable. Um, the new market had to be created, and old drugs, old anticonvulsant drugs, and a few antipsychotic drugs were now remarketed as mood stabilizers and as drugs that would help people especially those who antidepressants had not worked so well for. And what you find today in England as well as in many other parts of the world is that there's the claim that up to a third of those diagnosed classically with depression actually suffer from undiagnosed bipolar or form of bipolar disorder and hence need to move from the traditional antidepressant drugs onto the new mood-stabilizing medication. So I think for a large part, the ramification of the diagnosis is down to the marketing by the drugs companies, not only of their products, but of the so-called illness itself. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. So it, I guess not totally unrelated to this, um, uh, from pretty much the early part of the book, you, you seem to suggest that bipolarity almost inheres in modern subjectivity but then you but then you back away from this idea somewhat and focus instead um on individual case histories and and the structural features of manic depression That's right, um, so yeah. so how i mean i guess my question is how far do you take the notion or are you willing to take this notion that bipolarity is an effect or necessity even <laughs> of 21st right. uh, century work life or that consumer capitalism even you know promotes and rewards mania, say? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I think that the prevalence of the diagnosis of bipolarity in a casual sense chimes very nicely with the changes in socioeconomic life, especially in the Western countries, where there's an emphasis on short-term non-contractual work People have to show an unbridled enthusiasm for whatever they're doing, and then that will almost automatically be followed by periods of depletion when the mask wears thin. I mean, you can't sustain an unqualified and unconditional enthusiasm for what you're doing, from a training exercise to a gym class to anything you might be asked to do at work, where you have to prove that you are totally focused and all your energy is linked to what you've been asked to do. So in a certain way, the ups and downs of the effects of those changes in the job market mean that you will see an oscillation between bursts of enthusiasm and apparent exuberance and, let's say, low mood. But what I argue in the book is that Although we should recognize that and think about it, that's not the same thing as manic depression as such, mm -hmm. which still is relatively rare compared to what the statistics are telling us. And probably the relevant, the, the prevalence is more or less what it was you know, a century ago. So we're looking at how the diagnosis of bipolarity came to be popularized, what it echoes in terms of modern culture and socioeconomic life, and then trying to differentiate the classic psychiatric diagnosis of manic depression from that. Mm -hmm. um, which we'll get to. See, yeah, your position, and, and one might expect 
this from a Lacanian, if that's how you identify, mm-hmm. or, or an analyst, um, is, that, is that manic depression is not inherited or, or genetic. And, and bipolar as a diagnosis tends to be, um, it tends to have that uh, branding, if you will. Uh, but rather that it's, it's manic depression is rooted in an individual's early history, uh, specifically relationships with primary caregivers or, or a fantasy about one's symbolic place within the family. And that manic depression tends to have like um, uh, specific structural aspects, right? But yeah, which I would, yeah, which I want to get into detail. But before that, one of your mm-hmm. early points about mania specifically um, is that it manifests itself often in a flow of words. A certain, I love this phrase, a levity in the symbolic register, and this, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, an easy relationship with language. In other words, um, yeah. And I teach history at the university level, so I've read, I have read some some manic student papers over the years. And mm-hmm. what always struck me, I mean, these papers were so, um, they were just extraordinary in breadth and, and metaphor, and they were quite original. They mm-hmm. weren't sort of the, the word salad one might think that, you know, this could lead to or something. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so okay, I guess two related questions about this. Um, is this relationship to language uh, in manic depression unique, uh, or in mania, is it unique to mania, or is it present in other forms of psychosis? And, and then is the connection between, you know, what is the connection actually between mania and creativity? Again, it's a very good question. What I've tried to show in the book is that behavior that seems to be manic isn't necessarily the manic that we find in manic depression. Mm. And that anyone can be high, they can be exuberant, they can feel invincible and on top of the world. You can find that in any kind of clinical structure. But true mania involves a very particular kind of arc, which begins with a certain confidence in language. And what struck me with um, with patients is the way in which when mania gets going, you see the exact opposite to what we normally find when someone tries to speak, let's say in the analytic context, they're trying to find words, there's the difficulty trying to describe things, there's a kind of work of representation. Whereas what you find at the beginning of the manic arc is the fact that rather than the words not being there, the words are there. The person seems perfectly placed within language. Things start to go wrong a bit later on, but it, it seems very, very specific the the feeling of mastery in language that you find in the early stages of a manic episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this could be potentially rewarded, I guess, in the workplace. Or some of these features seem desirable. I, ca- I guess, but this is a more cultural. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of cultural commentators have looked at the way in which being able to speak brilliantly and with great energy and focus about something seems to fit with certain kinds of um, expectations culturally about the creatives. And um, Emily Martin wrote a superb book about these echoes between bipolarity and culture called Bipolar Expeditions. (laughs) And there's also an extraordinary and hardly ever cited um, discussion by the sociologist Irving Goffman (laughs) in in his book Relations in Public, which was published, I think, in the early 1960s. There's a kind of appendix to the book where he talks about manic depression from exactly this perspective. And it's absolutely topical today, well worth going back to. Well, I didn't know that Goffman... I I hadn't read that when I did Strictly Bipolar, so Mm. it's something I've only read recently, but it's absolutely superb. 
I'll have to take a look because I, I I don't know that part of Goffman. Mm. But um, so let's talk about uh, some of the potential triggers and and features of mania, maybe structural features and. In relation to this, uh, I thought you said some interesting things in the book about the roles of guilt, I believe, responsibility and debt and debt. Yeah. In, yeah. in mania and how and how they manifest themselves. Yeah, what, what's especially interesting is this oscillation of a fault that in the classic psychoses, paranoia and melancholia, the fault, a sense of guilt, seems to be fixed. So for the paranoiac, the other is guilty and they're innocent. And for the melancholic subjects, they are guilty and the rest of the world might be innocent. The, the fault is on themselves. And you know, whatever you say or do, it's very, very difficult to budge that certainty for a melancholic subject, just as it is for the paranoiac to persuade them that actually the other doesn't have bad intentions. Um, in manic depression, on the other hand, the fault doesn't seem fixed. It's neither fixed with the subject nor with the other, but seems to oscillate between them. And hence you see the extraordinary displays of altruism in manic depression. That people often talk about the manic episode as selfish, the person spends all the family money, they go off, people don't see them for days, they don't know where they are, everyone worries about them. But what you often find when you scrutinize what's actually going on is that the person is engaged in activities that at some point they will construe as charitable. They're trying to help or save other people. And you always have this at the horizon of the manic depressive subject's world, this effort to preserve, to keep the other out of danger. When you have that, it's as if the subject is trying to keep the other safe and then you have this movement between the manic phase and the more depressive phase where things oscillate and it turns back on the subjects. And it, it, it's that rhythm that seems, again, very particular to manic depression rather than to other kinds of um, psychical structure. Yeah, and there's also seemed to be this uh, theme of debt, which I think you link very well to, at least in the specific cases you discuss, uh, to people's uh, personal history. Yeah, I mean, again, without trying to link the diagnostic category to particular life events, what you find again and again and again, and it would be silly not to recognize this, is the fact that in the parental or grandparental or great-grandparental history, you so often find the question of a debt that hasn't been sealed, that hasn't been processed in some way. And it's often around the question of a bereavement. There's been a tragic death with no kind of treatment of it in the way that guilt might be assigned and fixed in some other psychical structures here. You find a kind of floating sense of debt and responsibility that moves from one generation to the next without being pinned down. And you can see manic depression as an effort to do something with that free-floating guilt, to either pin it down to oneself in the depressive phase or to send it outwards in the manic phase when the subject feels absolutely innocent. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you mentioned in relation to this, that um, manic depressives and schizophrenics, for example, have very different stances toward the other with a capital O. 
Uh, maybe you can say something about this and the feeling of grandiosity involved in both and maybe how if they're different. Um, so what, what's happening in, in manic depression and schizophrenia at the level, I, I guess, of identity? Uh, again, you have to address this. Yeah. yeah. It's a very good question. Um, it seems as if manic depression and schizophrenia can be distinguished in the sense that it would seem as if for schizophrenic subjects, the world of meaning is open, too open. And so there'll be attempts to fix things with delusional ideas that don't seem to have too much longevity. It's very rare to find a delusion that has an enduring quality over time and an explanatory power for a schizophrenic subject that stays in place. That's something that paranoid people have, but not schizophrenics in general. The more I've thought about this question, the more it seems to me that actually manic depression ought to be included as one of the group of schizophrenias, <laughs> because you can see that both the manic depressive subject and the, let's say, the, the, the classical forms of schizophrenia, they're dealing with really the same problem, which is how to regulate the over-proximity of the other. When the other is too close, what forms of distance can one make? What, what strategies can one bring into place in order to try to regulate it? And that would explain why we see so many little symmetries between schizophrenia and manic depression. So, for example, in schizophrenia, the common idea that thoughts have been extracted from one's own mind, whereas in manic depression, you often find that the person has the idea that they are able to influence others through projecting thoughts in their own mind or through a kind of connection of thoughts within their mind into other people's minds. And you continually see symmetries like this, which might seem to suggest that actually both the manic depressive subject and the schizophrenic are working on the same kind of psychical space. They've got the same underlying problems that they have to deal with, and they're using different processes to try to manage that space where things are too close to them, where the other is too present. Mm -hmm. Would you say that you talk a lot about the, the role of splitting, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the book, for, for in manic depression, you know, the separa separation of love and hate yeah. and good and bad. And um, I don't, is that is that true in schizophrenia as well? It's often true in schizophrenia because things can seem to be going nicely at some point and then the world can turn menacing and persecutory. The question of trust is also very important there because for many schizophrenic subjects, there's a lack of trust in the other there can never be a kind of solidity to, mm. let's use the Anglo-Saxon term of object relations, a kind of endurance of objects. Whereas one of the things, again, that's quite striking in my depression is the loyalty to people when often there's very little basis for that loyalty. So it would seem to be as if there's a contrast between the lack of trust in schizophrenia and the excessive trust in manic depression, but ultimately perhaps they can be seen as two, two sides of the same coin. The underlying problem is the same, and that the excessive trust is a treatment of the fundamental problem in the relation of the, of the subject to the other. Right, it's a way of dealing with it, yeah. Yeah, so um, there the, the, the yeah. are different ways of dealing with things. And with the question of the separation of traits, again, very often at the start of a mania, the world seems to be absolutely fantastic. Everyone is an angel. 
everything is good. We're all working together for some good cause. Later on, things can become much worse and the subject can be faced with a, a kind of very, very rapid oscillation between good and bad, which can be absolutely terrifying and distressing for them. And one of the things I argue in the book is that we need to take the hyphen in manic depression seriously and see manic depression as an effort to separate states that would otherwise be too fused, too merged, too confusingly connected to each other. And so what we might see as a kind of pathological feature of manic depression, this separation of you know everything being good or everything being bad, is actually an attempt at recovery because what the subject is trying to do mm-hmm. is precisely to create that difference, to create binaries. And that could be something that, that might um, have some implications for clinical work with a manic depressive subject to help them to construct and perpetuate binary oppositions, splittings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and why does, uh, okay, maybe you've kind of expl- touched on this already, but why does the paranoia, why is paranoia often a sign that a manic episode is ending? Because it, it seems to, that that's the way they sort of evolve, right, into, into a kind of paranoia. Well, I mean, ha- hatred is, is a great way to form. Hatred is a great way to establish the limits. And mm-hmm. if you can fix hatred somewhere in the world, at least you have an orientation, at least you have a position, at least you have a place which you can situate yourself in relation to. And love, for example, for some people is much more confusing. It's much more difficult in the field of love to know where one stands. But if you hate someone or believe that they hate you, there's a certain stability in that maneuver. And I think that's one of the reasons why we often see a little burst of paranoid hatred. It's not proper paranoia, but it's it's just Mm. paranoid um, towards the end of the manic cycle or when people are actually coming out of the manic cycle when they're they're calming down. And again, it's not something that one should necessarily try and question. And and then um, you also, again, you mentioned this a little uh, briefly just now earlier, um, you discuss these uh, so-called mixed states of manic depression. This is where you said the hyphen should be taken seriously. But it seems that, um, yeah, that often there's this there's a vacillation or an oscillation even within the depression or the mania, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this is especially terrifying for the manic depressive subject, as um, as one person put it, it's like a CD constantly skipping. Where on earth? can the person find some kind of safety if there's this incredibly rapid movement, literally second by second, between feelings of absolute despair and emptiness and pain and feelings of some kind of elation. The the closer these things are together, the more difficult it is for the person to to live with it. And rather than seeing these so-called mixed states as a product of manic depression, one of the things I argue in the book is that they could be seen as what manic depression is trying to treat. Because, of course, one of the most difficult problems in childhood, whether the person will later be manic depressive or not, is the, the proximity of conflicting states love and hate, for example. We have a, we use the word ambivalence as a way to try and um, domesticate the, the horror of that situation. All right. 
Um, maybe then you can say a few words about this early, the early relationships that tend to, uh, I know it's, it's that you, you advocate actually looking at each individual history. So in a way, asking you for some kind of formula is, is going against that. But can you talk a little bit about some of the things that maybe either trigger the mania or then, or, or, or might cause someone to be, to become manic depressive early in childhood? Well, I mean, the, there are always particularities to each case, and as you say, right. you know, there, there isn't a kind of formula that you know, if your parents are like this, then you will be manic depressive. On the other hand, that shouldn't stop us from being sensitive to details like you know the question of how the parental moods were transmitted to the child. If a parent at one moment focuses all their energy on the child as the absolute object of an unconditional love and at another moment totally ignores them, you have to wonder how that person is going to find a place in the world, what, what they're going to use as, as their coordinates. And certainly some people find ways around that which don't involve them producing a manic depression themselves, whereas other people don't. So there are different pathways. Again, you know, all children probably have to deal with the question of the parental ideals, what mm-hmm. expectations the parents have, what, what disappointments have been important in the parents' own lives, and what the, the ideal images resultant from those disappointments might be. But the weight of those ideals on the child will, again, vary from case to case. But again, you know, it's something we find in night depression a lot. The omnipresence of a maternal ideal on the person, which they either assume in a mortifying way or in a more exuberant way. Again, there's a kind of a difficulty in inscribing and processing one's position in relation to the maternal ideal. So it either crushes the subject or they kind of ride it, and then things become more difficult later on. Remember that the mania in manic depression is always an arc. It's not one thing. It's a movement, a progression Hmm. Well, yes, and um, since you were talking about the arc, uh, you, you know, you don't talk that much. You don't in the book. I I found it interesting that there wasn't nearly as much space um, devoted to depression in the book as to mania. And I was wondering, maybe is it because you've written extensively on depression in the past, or I mean, um, it, it's yeah. I tried to write about depression towards the end of the book. You did. Um, <laughs> I think that really what I was trying to do in the the first few sections of the book is to question the too casual identification of states of elation Mm. with uh, with mania. And this is something that you find in early psychiatry, late 19th, early 20th century psychiatry. What everyone is doing is precisely to question the link between manic depression and mood fluctuations, surface appearance of changing moods, and to look for more structural features. Whereas today, it's as if we've gone full circle, and whereas the people who had actually introduced the categories of what was then called double-form madness or circular psychosis, for them what mattered was to go beyond mood fluctuations and differentiate what they saw as the mania of manic depression from other states of being 
elated or high or having excessive energy or agitation in the body. Whereas now, we've, you know, those things are conflated with it. So I, I was trying to encourage people to rethink mania with the book. So perhaps that's why there's more space devoted to that than to the depressive state. I see, I see. But, but you do say something, you, you do sort of distinguish between which, I mean, this is something I found interesting as, as someone who's just beginning clinical work. Um, uh, the distinction between uh, unipolar or, or depression or, or melancholia and, uh, the depression of bipolarity. You, you yeah, say that they are, they're absolutely. structurally, that there are structural reasons for these, these, um, the differences. Yeah, they're totally different. And this is one of the extraordinary things in the history of psychoanalysis. In Freud's very, very tentative discussion in Morning and Melancholia in 1915, he links melancholia and manic states, whereas finding melancholia without manic states is much, much more common than finding them linked together. And when they are linked together, arguably, you're dealing with something which is radically different from melancholia. So again, that, that's one of the points I tried to elaborate in the book. Mm-hmm. The, the, the unipolar depression that Freud situated as melancholia is actually you know, very, very different from the so-called bipolar states. And one, one feature of that differentiation is the fact that in a melancholia, the subject's eye, their ego, becomes magnified as the source and cause of all sins, of all destruction, of ruin in the world, of, of things being wrong. Whereas in the lows of manic depression, you don't have that magnification of the ego. You rather have a kind of rubbing out of the ego, which is very, very different. You won't have the person complaining 24 hours a day about themselves. Mm-hmm. They're usually blaming somebody else for their problems. Well, it's not that they're blaming someone else, because that could actually be a, a positive feature of the cure, <laughs> that the okay. hatred is, is going outwards. But it's more that, again, as, uh, as someone put it, they feel more like a, a kind of amoeba-type creature. Mm. And that's very different from broad, what you have in melancholia, so often is the person broadcasting to the world about how bad they are, about what a disaster or a failure they are, which means creating a kind of panel in front of whom one describes one's sins or one's faults. Mm. Sometimes the person will go to see a therapist in order to do that. So they're very vocal about it, whereas you don't find that, in my experience, in the lows of manic depressive states. The person isn't trying to construct a tribunal to accuse them of a sin. They actually feel a, you know, a kind of terrible despair and emptiness as if their self has been erased. I see. Okay, that's, yeah, that's very vivid. Um, I was also, um, we have to sort of, wow, um, we're going to run out of time soon, but I wanted to ask this before we do about, I was struck, uh, there was in the case of Jane Pauley, um, whose story you, you actually discuss in some detail, uh, mm. the, the immediate cause of the mania for her uh, was a case of hives, and, and she, she I, th- I believe she eventually links this uh, to the death of her father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful discussion in her book. I mean, the obvious explanation for those around her at the time was, uh, yeah, you know, the mania was linked to um, the steroid she'd been given for the hives, and you know, clinically it's not a great idea to give someone in a manic state the steroid. But 
as she continues to think about what happened in the book that she'd been reading at the time, which was also the book on her dying father's bedside table, she realizes, and that, you know, for, for various different reasons, that it was linked to the question of the, the mourning for her father. Mm-hmm. Do you do you often? I was wondering if if there are some if there's a somatic component to mania, or if this is pretty rare. What do you mean by somatic component? Or if, you know, there's this kind of, um, there are symptoms, there are, there are physical symptoms, in other words, that either trigger or, or play some kind of symbolic role in the whole thing. Again, it would depend on, yeah. on the case. You know, I mean, if, if someone gets an illness or a diagnosis that resonates with an illness or a diagnosis that plays a role in the family history, then sure, it might have some kind of triggering effect. But, you know, you always have to look at the, the particularity of the circumstance of a triggering. It's very, very important to do that. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Uh, again, one more question before we, uh, we wrap up. I, I was thinking about, um, I was struck, I wanted to actually, toward the end of the book, you, you write, I wanted to quote you, we should not forget that traditionally manic depression was seen as the one form of psychosis that was most likely to stabilize and resolve over time, whereas today it has almost the opposite reputation. This is surely linked to the abdication from efforts to understand the world of the manic depressive in favor of an approach that aims to manage and control an apparently biological illness. It has been argued, indeed, that recovery rates were better in the pre-drug era, whereas today a diagnosis of manic depression is almost certain to lead to a heavy regime of medication and, in many cases, prognostic bleakness. Um, yeah. So would you, would you or, or do you treat manic depression psychoanalytically without medication often? Yeah, very often. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the person isn't on medication and continues without meds. Sometimes they're on meds, they come off them. Sometimes they stay on them. Um, sometimes I encourage the person to start medication. Um, again, you always have to look at the particularity of the case. You also have to think about what role the medication has for them and is the medication being responsibly prescribed. I mean, the, um, the release of the documents in the last couple of years in the States has shown the extraordinary... Um, irresponsible prescription methods and the, the lack of attention given to you know incredibly important side effects with very very serious consequences for people who are being given these drugs every day again reading through the historical documents as I was preparing the book it was absolutely extraordinary to see how the prognosis for manic depressive psychosis you know 110 120 years ago was, you know, was seen as pretty good. Hmm. Whereas today, you know, people are told, oh, yes, this is an immutable biological illness that you will have for life. And hence, let's give you these drugs, not just to calm a manic state, but let's give them prophylactically. So you have to take these drugs to stop the symptoms from coming back, mm-hmm. you know, which is great for the, the marketplace because it means you can sell someone drugs for the rest of their life. Not great for the person. Yes, and it doesn't seem to be questioned anymore whether the drugs are necessary. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a tragedy. Uh, do you do you feel actually there's been in the New York Times recently there there have been articles about uh, you know the talk therapy is useful for schizophrenics. Um, so I'm wondering actually if you you said that there's you think that there's a, a closer relationship between schizophrenia and manic depression than has been acknowledged. Would you also treat schizophrenia without medication? Yeah, I, I do all the time. 
again, one of the things that really ought to be acknowledged is that schizophrenia is everywhere. It's probably, you know, one of the most common diagnostic categories of all, you know, of, of human life generally. And most schizophrenics will go through life without ever being aware that they are schizophrenic. Hmm. Now, and it, it's not something to be associated with the sort of grim early 20th, late 19th century pictures of the kind of um, person locked away in an asylum who won't speak to anyone and who's in a kind of stupor. But schizophrenics a bit can just have a perfectly normal life, um, find ways of functioning just as everyone um, you know, tries to find their own pathways. Mm-hmm. That's something that I argue in the, the um, uh, What is Madness, which came out a few years ago here, <laughs> um, that you need to see these things as, as just basic um, structures of human existence, not as medical pathologies. Mm. Well, uh, I guess on that sort of optimistic note, uh, what are you, um, uh, before, really this time before we end, what are you working on now? What is your current project? I've just finished a book, which has oh. um, just gone to the copy editor this week, mm-hmm. which is called Congratulations. Hands. What is it Thank called? You. Hands. Oh. And I wrote it just because I was totally fed up with always being asked to make comments on the digital age and virtual reality and the internet and computers and about how this has changed human relationships and so on. I was so fed up with having these same questions asked interminably that I tried to look at it from another perspective, not what does the virtual world, um, you know, how does it alienate us, but rather how does it give us new or not so new ways to keep our hands busy? So it's a kind of history looking at the ways in which people have kept their hands from idleness. Wow, that is a different perspective on it. That's interesting. I look forward to that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Anyway, so uh, we should wrap up. Uh, We've been uh, speaking with Darian Leader about his uh, beautifully written Lucid book, Strictly Bipolar. Darian, thanks uh, thanks again. I really enjoyed this interview. Thank you, Anna. And thanks to our audience for listening. Till next time.